This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. Today, I'm speaking with Aaron Samuels. Aaron Samuels is the co-founder and chief operating officer of Blavity Inc., a digital community for black millennials that reaches over 30 million people per month across five digital properties, including Blavity News, Travel Noir, Afrotech, Shadow and Act, and 2119. After working at Bain & Co. as a strategy consultant, Aaron left his corporate life to pursue his passion as a writer and builder of community. He has since written a book of poetry, toured the country, performed on television, and landed himself on Forbes' coveted 30 Under 30 list as a rising star in the tech and media space. Aaron received his undergraduate degree from Washington University in St. Louis and his MBA from Stanford University's Graduate School of Business. When he is not at Blavity, Aaron is a nationally touring poet and speaker. His debut collection of poetry, Yarmulkes and Fitted Caps, was released on Right Bloody Publishing. Aaron Samuels is Black and Jewish. Hi, Aaron. Hi. So, Aaron, tell us what led you to start Blavity? Blavity was, in many ways, the natural culmination of many different forces in the universe leading my team towards this particular outcome. Morgan, Jeff, Jonathan, and I were all undergraduates together at Washington University in St. Louis. And Washington University, while a primarily white institution, had a very, very strong and tight-knit Black community. And we were all a part of that. Morgan, Jeff, and I were part of the same scholarship program, which focused on Black leadership. And Morgan, Jonathan, and I were part of the same community service society. And being just part of the Washington University community taught us at a young age, at a a formative age, when we were learning how to be adults, learning how to be leaders, how important it was to have strong community and especially to have strong community for Black people, for people of color, for underrepresented groups. And we had this, this phenomenon at Washington University where several Black students uh, would gather every day uh, to eat lunch um, in the dining hall. And there was, there was this one table um, that you know Black people would, would sit at. There'd be three or four people sitting there and a black person would walk by and they would wave that person down and that person would come and sit at the table and then the four of them would then wave another person and you know soon there'd be five, six, seven, ten people at the table. We'd run out of chairs, then we'd bring over more chairs, then we'd bring over more tables, and pretty soon you'd have like 30, 40 people um, at this table. And at this table, you're having conversations about sure you know where the party is this coming weekend or what music just dropped but at the other side of the table you got people helping each other with their math homework or their engineering problem set 
You have people sharing internship opportunities, people giving advice about love uh, and about growing up. And this table was where I went for advice when I needed something or when I went to find family, uh, when I went to find love. And it represented for me everything that was that was the best parts of a community, this cacophony of conversation that was happening simultaneously. And we called that phenomenon where you're walking by that table and you see the crew and you get pulled and drawn towards that group of people. Uh, we called that black gravity, uh, one of the strongest forces in the universe and in our college campus. And, um, and that was Blavity for short. When we graduated, Morgan, Jeff, Jonathan, and I all ended up in different forms of kind of corporate America or, or tech America. Morgan was a product manager at Intuit. Jeff was one of the engineers at Palantir. Jonathan was running community marketing at LinkedIn. And I was working as a strategy consultant at Bain & Company while, I guess, moonlighting as a, as a performance poet outside of work. And all of us felt disconnected from uh, the Black community in a way that we hadn't felt when we were undergrads. When we were undergrads, even though we were in a primarily white space, we had the strength of this table, of the you know, Association of Black Students, of our scholarship program. We felt very connected versus when we went into corporate America, all four of us had experiences of being one of the only Black people there with a lot of, a lot of eyes on us, um, feeling that the standards were not always you know, appropriately applied to people that looked like us. And we found that this wasn't a unique phenomenon in chatting with a lot of our friends who had gone on into corporate spaces or tech spaces, found that there was this sense of isolation. And we wanted to find a way to combat that. So after a few years in business with the experiences that we had in, in technology, with what we knew about storytelling and art, we started asking ourselves, what could we do using what we know, using these, these tools and skill sets to replicate the feeling that we had as undergrads nationally? and using the tools of the digital community uh, in order to do so. And, you know, this was 2013, 2014, when we, when we started having these conversations. We were seeing the rise of Black Lives Matter. We were seeing the government execution of Troy Davis and then looking at the death of people like Trayvon Martin. And, you know, of course, culminating in, in, you know, the event of, of Michael Brown and Ferguson. And we saw these events just impact our community. Uh, every time a Black person is, is killed by the government or killed, period, um, in a way that, that is either sanctioned by the government or not acknowledged as valuable, it hurts and there's, and there's pain there. And we didn't see this being being appropriately documented and, and captured in mainstream media in a way that felt relevant, that felt sensitive and appropriate and applicable to the way that Black millennials were actually talking about these issues and these difficult things in our community. And 
it wasn't that we weren't having robust and nuanced conversations about the values of Black lives or the ways that we can build together as as community leaders in order to resist our own oppression. You know, we were having these conversations and these conversations were happening all over the world. They just weren't being represented in mainstream media outlets. And so, you know, looking looking to the past and, and in many ways, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants, we we started asking, where do we go? And in the same ways or in similar ways that my grandfather had Jet Magazine and my mom's generation had Essence Magazine. And we, we wanted to say, okay, what is that platform, that source of truth, a source of family, source of community for Black millennials and rising Black Gen Z? And so the first thing that we did is we said, okay, well, where... Where are these conversations already happening? Because they weren't happening in mainstream media outlets, but but they were happening. Black millennials are sharing information with each other every single day. We're having robust conversations, but we weren't doing that by watching TV or necessarily reading newspapers. These conversations were happening in text message threads, in WhatsApp groups, in Slack communities. These conversations were happening on Twitter in Facebook groups and GroupMe across digital connectivity and uh, and taking place on our cell phones. And we said, okay, we not only need to create a news outlet, a journalistic outlet that tells the stories that we care about and that honestly articulates our positions on these issues, but we also wanted to create a media company that was sourcing the information through the distribution channels that we source information through. So through iteration and ideation, we ultimately settled on the idea that we wanted to create a digital mobile first media company that focused on black millennials. And you know, through these conversations, the idea was born for this company. And ultimately when we when we asked ourselves what did we want it to feel like when somebody went to our website or went to an app or went to a conference that we hosted or read an article that we have, um, saw us on social media, we wanted that feeling to feel the same way that it felt when we were undergrads and somebody would walk over to that table where immediately you feel embraced by love and support and access, and that the conversations that were happening on the website were mirroring the totality of the conversations that were happening in our community, that were mirroring the diversity that we have of opinions, of perspective within the Black community. Uh, So we decided to name the company after that feeling uh, that we had as undergrad. Uh, So we decided to name the company Blavity. The through line that I see running through the story from that initial sitting down at the table to the creation of this remarkable digital community is that word community. I wanted to pick your brain about that term community and more specifically digital community. What is a digital community? How does the idea of community really change when you get into the digital space or does it change? Yeah, it's a great question. And of of course, through this work, we, we find lots of definitions of community 
Uh, and I think that the very, the very notion of the digital world challenges preconceptions of, of what community means. I think that there's, there's many things that, that community means for me. And one of those things is this idea that you are accountable to people that are proximate to you um, and the idea that they are accountable to you. You know, and that, that, can be, that can be for good or for bad. That can be hard in, in many ways, just as much as it can be a benefit. But I think that the, the, the key kind of dynamic change with the word digital is it, it changes the notion of proximity. When you think about a physical community, oftentimes you think of a neighborhood. When you think about digital community, the notion of proximity becomes much more aggregation around identity. Um, which of course has overlaps with physical community, and in and in many ways, we believe that that the next generation of people in this world needs to build community across both digital and physical spaces, and really weave those two things together. Does that change the idea of community? I think it does. I think I think it changes what becomes possible, and I think one of the one of the best ways to think about that is in terms of what isolation means. I think about that as a as the opposite of community, isolation uh, becomes uh, becomes something that that digital community gives you another tool to be able to fight. So, for example, say I'm the only black person in a small town in Middle America that is interested in in digital technology, interested in gaming, or interested in a particular sport. I might have trouble finding my tribe. I might have trouble finding people near me um, or next to me. Um, but now with this notion of digital community, I can be part of a user forum. I can find people on Reddit. I can find people on different websites that are similar to me who might be in other cities, who might be in other countries. And I can be in quote unquote com community with them. Um, I, can, I can talk to them. I can receive resources. I can provide advice. I can create a business. I can sell things to other people. I can, I can, I can find love. I can date. These things are all now possible on cell phones and and on computers, and and therefore it means that the that the people that are around me are not necessarily the people that I need to be in conversation with. I think you're pointing towards something really important here, which is that the digital community created online actually have massive consequences. Yes for community and for the individual offline. Yes. Can you can you speak to some of those those impacts and, and some of the ways that digital community plays a role outside of cyberspace or translates itself outside of cyberspace into a community offline? Yeah. I, I think that community is a source of strength. And I think that oftentimes one of the tools of oppression is making people feel like they are alone making people feel like they are isolated. And that can change a person's mindset and mentality in the way that they advocate for themselves or advocate for causes that they believe in. And when you feel that you're alone and when you feel you're isolated, you become less likely uh, to do that, in, in, in my opinion. So I think that the idea that you know that there are millions of people that do feel the same way that you do about a cause and that you can see them in the chat and you can see their comments on articles and you can meet other other creators or, or, or artists or writers writing content that is in alignment with you. And then when you find yourself isolated in your place of work 
or in your educational institution or in your small town or in your big city. It's not just about, you know, number of people um, around you, but it's, it's about the, the type and the diversity of people around you. But for any reason that you find yourself isolated, if you know that you have a community behind you, it gives you more strength. It gives you more strength to stand up for what you believe in, to advocate for yourselves, to advocate for your people. And so just the very sheer fact of having access through these digital mechanisms to like-minded individuals changes your perception of self-strength and, and self-worth. And I think that that can dictate how um, a person can move through the world. How have you seen Blavity as a digital community to change or in- inflect the nature of the Black community offline? Yeah, I, I, I've seen it happen in, in so many different ways. One of the first things that we, that we had to state very clearly to ourselves is that the Black community is not just one community, which is, is kind of obvious, I think, to, to people that, that work in the Black community or work in Black communities. The people of the African diaspora, it's the, it's the most diverse group of, of people in a racial category in the, in the world. So, you know, the notion that Black people are just one thing is not a helpful notion many times. And often when I find uh, non-Black media sources, and sometimes even Black media sources, talking about Black people, uh, Black people are oftentimes painted with a wide brush. You know, Black people feel this way about a topic, or Black people do this thing. Everybody knows that that's not true, but, but I think we sometimes forget or we use short language to describe large and nuanced topics. And so I think the first thing that we had to do is we, said, we had to say, okay, what are the communities within the, the Black community that, that we believe we understand and we believe that we can focus on? And let's look at all of the subgroups within, within Black people. Um, and instead of painting Black people with a, with a broad brush, let's say, great, with, with digital, we can subsegment. We can understand preferences. We can, in many ways, function like a tech company and figure out the different types of user personas within our community and figure out what people need and what people care about. So through this work, we, we identified, uh, let's call it five large super communities with, within the, the Black millennial population that we felt that we were uniquely situated to create resources and community building for. So the first group is kind of where Blavity.com, our, our flagship site, came from, and that really focused on news, politics, truth-telling. Then kind of we created a platform called 2190, which you know is really for for women uh, with textured hair and melanated skin. And it looks at women of color who are advancing their careers and, and really looking at the, the deep intersections of health, beauty, and wellness with career advancement and entrepreneurship and how those things are oftentimes inextricably linked for, for all women, but especially heightened so for women of color. Then we looked at um, the tech community and the Black entrepreneurial community, uh, created a, a platform called Afrotech, which, which aims to support uh, the advancement of the Black tech ecosystem. We also acquired two companies based on you know, an understanding of the platforms that they, they were cultivating. One is a company called Shadow and Act, which focuses on Black Hollywood. This is really theater, television, and film. And 
the the platform really asks the question who are our heroes and how do we better find them if you can see yourself as the protagonist of of your own story it changes the way that you move through the world in 2017 we acquired a company called travel noir which is the largest black travel brand in the world and is is aspirational in that it basically asks it asks people to travel. It, it helps Black people travel internationally. Just the mere notion of of traveling to a different environment changes what what you believe is is possible about the way that you can live a life. And when you see yourself as a citizen of the world as opposed to as a citizen of your your block, your neighborhood, your household, it changes your your notion of of possibility. So through those five platforms: Blavity, Twenty One Ninety, Afrotech, Shadow and Act, and Travel Noir. We look for the communities within those subpopulations, look at their, the interests, ways that we can support advancement, uh, connectivity, ways of bringing people together in kind of small gatherings as well as large-scale gatherings, both in digital and physical spaces. You were speaking before about the importance of narrative and the importance of both telling your story and knowing that a story is possible for you. And Blavity stands for the belief that the world shifts according to the way people see it and the way people are able to tell their story. And if you change the way that people see the world, you can transform it. How has Blavity changed the way that people see the world? Is there an example of a moment where that change in perspective resulted in a tangible transformation? Uh, sure. I mean, in small ways, I hope that I hope it, that we do it every day with with our articles. But yeah, I mean, from a larger scale and, and maybe a more philosophical perspective, this belief is is the belief in the power of media itself. Movements don't start necessarily because because of a single catalytic event, uh, although oftentimes I think the history books write it that way. Oftentimes change, uh, social change begins more subtly over time with the slow changing of people's mindsets about issues, about beliefs and value structures. And I believe that, that the way that people's minds change um, are based on the stories that they're exposed to and the narratives that they have access to. And I think that that's the role, it's the role of media. It's to give people access to different narratives so that they can change their minds appropriately. And I also believe that when there's a limit to the representation of voices and of narratives in media, then it can create opportunities for exploitation and for manipulation. And I believe that yes, there was and and is still a gap in the representation of the voices for Black millennials and for Black Gen Z in media. And one of the things that we are trying to do is act as a counterbalance to that. We we can't do it alone, and you know we're just we're just one company, and we hope to see, and we have already seen multiple different ally organizations arise to try to help fill this void. But yes, that, that, that's our objective. And, and in terms of tangible change that we've seen, one example that I can speak to is the example of Afrotech. This is our brand that focuses on Black empowerment within Silicon Valley. 
and technology and entrepreneurship. When, when we were first having conversations about the notion of Black people in Silicon Valley, when we were out raising money for, for getting our fledgling company off the ground, and we were looking to figure out other successful Black people in Silicon Valley, the narrative that we kept hearing was, there are no Black people in Silicon Valley. There are no black people in Silicon Valley. This is the narrative. And it's funny too, because oftentimes, and I'm like, okay, you're a black person in Silicon Valley. <laughs> like, why are you telling me there's no black people? But I think that even the black people in Silicon Valley oftentimes believed that they were the only one. Now, after meeting a hundred or so black people in Silicon Valley who all believed that they were the only one, we started questioning the truth of this narrative and questioning the effect that this narrative was having on other Black entrepreneurs who might have started a company if not for the belief that they were the only ones to do it. Now, don't get me wrong. I want to speak very candidly. There are, there are not that many Black people in Silicon Valley, <laughs> um, and we absolutely need more. However, there are enough to have a critical mass, to have a gathering, uh, to advocate for each other. So when we were having then these conversations with, with corporations, we were hearing them espouse the same narratives. And, and I think it was detrimental because when a large corporation says, oh, well, we can't find any black people in Silicon Valley, they're speaking from a different place than when a black entrepreneur says it. When a black entrepreneur says it, I believe it comes from a place of loneliness. It's, they, they said, I'm looking, for my, I'm looking for my people here and I can't find them. Now I have empathy for that. Mm -hmm. I too want to find my people. However, when a company says it, when a company says, oh, well, there just, there just aren't that many black people in Silicon Valley, I believe it comes from a different place. And it oftentimes actually just sounded like an excuse and sounded like an excuse to not work hard enough to hire more black people. Because if you believe and if you've accepted the narrative that there's no black people here, then you don't have to hold yourself accountable for not hiring any. And as a result, a lot of times these companies were not hiring any people of color or were hiring very, very low numbers. And I saw that same rhetoric when applied to talking to venture capital funds. Oftentimes, venture capital funds would say the same thing. We would love to fund Black entrepreneurs, but there are none. So therefore, we haven't given capital to any emerging Black entrepreneurs. Now, this is where that narrative hurts us. So Morgan and Jeff and Jonathan and I said, okay, well, we know that there are hundreds, that at least there were hundreds um, at that point in time of Black entrepreneurs, designers, business people, operations folks, founders and entrepreneurs who were all people of color living in the Bay Area who were looking for jobs and looking for capital. And we're like, okay, we know these people. And then we have all these companies that are saying we would hire Black people, we would hire people of color, we just can't find any. Um, so we said, okay, let's create Let's literally just create a platform to showcase the visibility that this community exists. And we, were, we did it through the creation of a conference and digital programming series online, a newsletter to highlight the value of this community. And then, you know, we, we started having a, an annual conference every year. Year one, we had about a little under a thousand people. Year two, about 2,200. Year three, about 4,400. And then last year, year four, we had over 10,000 people. And these are over 10,000 people, the majority of whom are Black, the majority of whom work in tech. 
And for us to just say that, and then of course, call media attention to these conferences, to these individuals, to have articles that highlight the successes of our community. What that does is it not, not only does it bring us together to find each other and help people find their tribes, which of course is one of the things that, that we really care about, but it also changes the narrative from the perspective of the companies. Because now a, a large company can't say, oh, well, there's none. There are no black people in Silicon Valley. Or an entrepreneur looking for capital can't bump into a venture capitalist who will say, oh, well, these black founders don't exist because we've, we've proved it beyond, beyond a doubt that, that this community is real and is vibrant. And so what, what that does is it creates a narrative shift. It, it, the world shifts according to the way that people see it. And now that people are forced to see the reality, which is that black people are innovators, are inventors, are entrepreneurs, are technologists now and arguably have been since the beginning of time once you force people to see it they can't unsee it and so then if black people don't get capital or don't get offered jobs it can't be because we don't exist and then it highlights perhaps a more insidious truth which which may be that that people don't want to give it to us but now that that's revealed we can then address the problems head on and you're talking about uh racial equity, about economic equity, about cultural equity, about social equity. You're also, I think, opening up massive questions about equity of design and consumption and creation and ideation. And when I talk about this, I use a parable that I think is very handy in getting people to understand in a very tactile way the stakes of this kind of representation. That parable is the parable of the pilot seat in which there was a study that was done about the disparity uh, in the profession of being a pilot between genders. And a lot of theories about why that disparity exists had to do with social theory. Women don't want to be away from home. Theories that you know men go into the Air Force and the Air Force is a conduit for people to become pilots and therefore it's more masculine dominated. And what one study actually demonstrated is that the disparity majorly came down to the design of the pilot seat. Men are on the whole larger than women. And in order to be agile in the pilot seat, you have to be able to sit functionally well, be able to access the controls in a maximally dexterous way. And that oftentimes when a woman would sit in the seat, she didn't know why, but she just felt that she was less agile. She couldn't even understand why she was less agile than her male counterparts, except for the fact that she thought that she wasn't and she would opt out. And I offer this parable because I think it's tactile, but I think it also gets us down to a very important point. We have to ask before we ask who can sit in the seat, who designs the seat? Well, engineers design the seat and there's gender disparity in the engineering profession. So the point is that we design for the bodies and the experiences we know. It is extremely hard to design equitably for a broad, global, diverse audience if you only have the people designing coming from a one-dimensional social group. 
So I think what you're getting at here is that it is massively important to have a diverse group of people in Silicon Valley doing the designing, doing the engineering, doing the ideation. Yes. Uh, yes to, to all of the above. And don't get me wrong. It's, it's not that I believe that social change can only happen from Silicon Valley. Uh, but Silicon Valley does seem to have an outsized impact on social change, just for, you know, but, but for the mere fact that the amount of capital in, invested from um, Silicon Valley investors has just gone so much further than so much other capital has in the world in terms of, you know, the products that affect now our, our daily lives, Google and Facebook and <laughs> Snapchat and Twitter and all of these ways that millennials get information all seems to be coming from money that is centered around the Silicon Valley ecosystem. So it just calls into question, okay, if, if this is where all the money is coming from and this is where, where the engineers and the designers are coming from, what does that mean for the way that the products are, are configured? And I think that your, your points are, are spot on. It's because there weren't that many women that were on the engineering team to create the pilot seat or women that were used as test dummies for the configuration of the pilot seat or women supervisors to call that out in the process or women VPs to make sure that there's women supervisors on the project or women who are on the board of directors who are ensuring these protocols are implemented. And I think in many ways, we see very similar phenomenon happening all the time throughout organizations, all the way up to the people that are making the investment decisions. Mm -hmm. When you don't have women on boards of directors and supervisory roles and engineering positions, when you don't have people of color, when you don't have black people in these roles, then narratives are ignored. So I think, I think that, that is, that's super important. But I'm not only advocating for more representation within Silicon Valley communities. Mm -hmm. I'm ar arguing for, for probably something a little bit even, even more robust, which is that I, I don't believe that the problems of the world primarily reside in Silicon Valley. <laughs> I believe that, that the problems of the world are so vast and oftentimes people that are in Silicon Valley or in, in, in New York or in LA or in, in these kind of coastal hubs that you know liberal <laughs> folks like me tend to live can still be very disconnected from the, the large experiences of people around the world and of people of color around the world. And so the goal should be not just to create more representation in these pillars of power, but also to disseminate opportunities for, for access and for power all, all over geographic and demographically focused splits. But what I mean to say is I don't just want Black people on more boards in Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. While I do want that, what I also want is for the power of the capital in Silicon Valley and for the power of the media that comes from these large coastal hubs mm -hmm. to be counterbalanced mm -hmm. with, with ecosystems and pillars of power elsewhere, mm -hmm. um, in the Midwest, in the South, across the globe, mm -hmm. and through other demographically focused areas that don't just privilege things like college education and graduate level education that don't just privilege having experience through um, prestigious journalism programs before you can tell stories. Uh, I believe that we need to create access to narrative creation and storytelling, as well as for the creation of invention and innovation throughout, uh, throughout the world. A bit of irony is that one narrative that I think Silicon Valley tells itself is that technology is neutral. 
and that these designs, algorithms, user interfaces are universal. And you can only tell yourself that if you have a very monolithic group of people doing the designing with the assumption that their experience is portable and universalizable. So I think it's really important to realize that technology is not neutral and that one bizarre and very specific facet of Silicon Valley is the assumption that has dominated Silicon Valley for many years that it is. Yeah. I mean, just, just to, to poke at that a bit, I think that, <laughs> I think that oftentimes when I've been in settings where there was an assumption of neutrality, oftentimes the presence of the word neutral or the concept of neutrality usually ends up benefiting whatever the status quo mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. So when you have something that's, that's neutral, I think at, at best, it means that the status quo remains unchanged. Mm -hmm. But if the status quo in and of itself is problematic, unfair, unjust, and designed to oppress, then any technology that is quote-unquote neutral means that it's also just part of a, a, like a tool of, of larger systems that is maintaining that problematic status quo. And then mm -hmm. in and of itself, the technology becomes a means of proliferation of that injustice. Mm -hmm. A mutual friend of ours was telling me about a platform that he'd been involved in, in the fintech space, where the aim was to democratize banking and to allow particularly uh, communities of color and communities of color in the global South to have access to banking and financing opportunities that have typically historically been denied to them. And he discovered that the system for processing applications actually reinforced the continued denial for these communities in their ability to access it. Now, it was very interesting as he was explaining this to me because the impulse and even the thinking was tremendously idealistic. And what they discovered was that their AI system, in other words, the algorithms they were using to select their applicants and to accept their applicants was consistently denying uh, the applications of people of color. And they, they looked into that and they, the, to really explore why. And what they discovered is that their algorithms were dependent on photographic technology and that you had to submit an application with a piece of photographic ID. And that photography historically is a mechanism that had been developed to capture white skin. And so the AI when it processed these applications would see the photographic image and it would not recognize a face. And so it would reject the application. I provide this example as a way of really thinking about just how deep and how deeply rooted these inequities are. Yeah, I, I hadn't heard that example, but <laughs> no surprises here. That, that, is, that is completely believable to me. We see so many examples like that, um, you know, across across the board. AI in self-driving cars has a similar disaster that I think is impending based on the use of photographic technology as its baseline for determining whether there's an object in the road. Of course, if you have a technology that is equipped 
and primarily calibrated to capture white skin, and you employ that technology as your mechanism for determining whether or not there is something on the road that a car might want to avoid, it, it lends itself to absolutely um, catastrophic consequences uh, with the assumption that that technology is neutral and without a really strong understanding of the history of these technologies. Absolutely. I wanted to go back and pick your brain about the Afrotech dimension of, of your work. And to ask a very basic question, what is Afrotech? And why is Afrotech such an important space to recognize and amplify? Afrotech is one of our brands underneath the Blavity Incorporated umbrella. And Afrotech at its core is a platform that aims to celebrate Black entrepreneurship with a, with an, a, a specific focus on uh, innovation and, and Black technology. It's important for so many reasons. One, because Black people are building awesome things. And everybody should know, the world should know, and we should be investing and supporting um, in these incredible innovations across industries. Whenever you engage with something in the Afrotech ecosystem, the key narrative that you're going to hear is Black people are building awesome things. This is something that is true, has always been true. And when you look across time, you can see some of the most impressive innovations affecting our li lives uh, came from Black people, you know, anything from peanut butter to the traffic light to the gas mask. So why is it so crazy to imagine that right now when we are in our heyday of technological innovation, that that there wouldn't be black people right at the center of it all, and um, and I think Afrotech just just looks that in the face and says, "Duh, <laughs> of course we are here. Uh, of course we are innovating. What can what can we do to support that? How can we connect black innovators to each other and to opportunities? So when you go to an Afrotech event or go to an Afrotech experience, the idea." is for founders to meet other founders. Uh, you might meet your co-founder of your next company at an Afrotech event. For entrepreneurs to get access to venture capital and VCs that, that claim that they want to invest in the Black community can come and actually meet high quality entrepreneurs that are building live companies right now. Folks who want to participate in the other aspects of the entrepreneurial ecosystem, such as being uh, a lead engineer, being part of a project team, being an operator, a designer, a marketer, uh, can look and find amazing opportunities with our corporate partners who, who show up and, and look to use our Afrotech uh, mm -hmm. platform and events as an opportunity to make hiring decisions. And so the goal is to build the ecosystem, mm -hmm. connecting people who want jobs to people who have jobs to offer, connecting people that need capital to people that have capital to deploy, and connecting the people who want to build amazing products and companies with other people that want to build amazing products and companies. And the idea is, a, is an entire ecosystem play to help all of us rise together. And I think you're also responding to, in a sense, the way that Africa as a continent that has been monolithically imagined has served as a object of futurist projections 
for so long, and very frequently those projections have been dystopic. In that sense, I think it might be particularly important to develop a futurist industry, which, of course, technological production is a major player in, to counter this narrative of dystopia. Yes, I think that's right. To, to kind of re- restate that, there are many perceptions of, of Africa, of the African diaspora, that are, are rooted in, in a sense of, of chaos, are rooted in a sense of oppression, are, are rooted in a sense of helplessness. And that is the opposite of the story that, that we are projecting. We, be, we believe that Black people are brilliant, are builders, are organizers, and have always been responsible for the creation of beautiful things. And in 2020, and in places like Silicon Valley, and LA, and New York, and Detroit, and, and all over the country, and in amazing tech hubs that are emerging in Lagos and in Cape Town and mm-hmm. in the West Indies, we, <laughs> we're doing awesome things. And Afrotech, in many ways, the most radical notion of it all is that we're just telling the truth about the fact that Black people are and have always been building amazing things. That's, that's not, it's not dystopian at all. It's, it's in fact the opposite. I think that Mm-hmm. While, of course, we have to build within um, a larger world that aims to oppress and subvert us, there is something beautiful about the fact that we build despite. I wonder whether you could talk on a personal level about the way in which a lot of your thinking and values comes out of your identity, which intertwines both Black and Jewish strands of identity. And thinking about community in the way that you've talked about it here, I think we also have to consider the way in which, as you have said, identity is not static and located in one singular community, or that a sort of, so to speak, monolithic community is not representative of everybody in that community. But very frequently, there's a dynamic force at play here that maneuvers across multiplicity of spaces, across boundaries that separate identity categories and between cultures. How do you view the idea that belonging can exist in that context? And and how does the idea of digital community, especially as you've talked about it here, and as you've taken part in building digital communities, reflect and and perhaps even come into tension at times with those values and principles? I think that part of my own identity journey across my life has been coming to an acceptance that my identities do not have to act as caveats for one another, but rather that they can inform and be in constant conversation with one another. There, there perhaps was a time in my childhood where I may have said something like, I am Black, but I am also Jewish. Um, or I am Jewish, but I am also Black. And I find that that framework is not a helpful or productive one and was absolutely something that was learned and not something that, that was self-created. Um, and I think that the biggest difference between me as a, as a young person and, and me now is very concretely, you know, being able to say, you know, it's not, it's not black, but Jewish or Jewish, but black. No, I would say I'm, I am black and Jewish. And both of these things firmly are rooted in me. I think that this, these were conversations that I've had my whole life and, and also conversations that we had among the Blavity founding team at the beginning stages of her company, which I thought was, was really important that even the four of us, when we started this company, were four very different types of Black people. Jeff 
being from a, a large black family on the south side of Chicago, Morgan being a light-skinned black woman entrepreneur from St. Louis, Jonathan being the son of Trinidadian immigrants and first generation black person in the United States and me being a a mixed race black and Jewish kid from New England. All of us had a very different experience growing up and and in many ways represented wildly different corners of of the black millennial experience. And yet we all found each other and found commonality and common ground. And I think that, that that's in general just something that's mm-hmm. that's very, very special about the black community. I, I mentioned earlier that the the people of the African diaspora is the most diverse racial group in the world. But it also has been my personal experience that the people of the African diaspora are also one of the most accepting racial groups of one another. And I think part of that comes with um you know, with the idea that there's been so much mixing and cultural influence within the Black community's history. Of course, with the caveat that that has oftentimes been as a result of large-scale oppression and problematic uh, histories. Nonetheless, so much mixing and cultural uh, meshing has happened. And there were already so many rich, diverse uh, cultures to pull from in many ways prior to, to, to that, that it means that Black people are many things. And I would argue a very similar notion of history with regards to Jewish history. Jewish people um, for the last 5,000 years have been assimilating and weaving in to multiple different societies across the world. And in, in many ways, Jewish culture and liturgy is a blend of all of the different cultural traditions that we've picked up along the way. (laughs) And so in many ways, the story of Blackness for me and the story of Judaism for me is one of survival across multiple generations inside of a world that demands your extinction um, or demands your subservience. And I think that the fact that both of these communities, that both of these histories live inside my body, live inside of the intergenerational trauma that has been passed to me, I think that I learned to weave that double helix of identity together in a way that, that then resulted in strength. And these are still communities to this day that I, that I pull strength from. Outside of Blavity, I'm also involved in several projects that involve Jewish empowerment, and specifically in projects that involve empowerment for Jews of color and people that operate at at those intersections, similar to myself. And I think that for me, the, the idea of belonging comes from being able to find common ground and solidarity within each and all of these communities. That's so beautifully put. Because Blavity is in the digital space, I have to ask, has that identity or set of identities or thinking about identity changed through the development and proliferation of communities in the digital space? I think so. And I think that the biggest way is just just about access. Growing up in Providence, Rhode Island, you know, and, and I'm, a, I'm a millennial in in many ways, like classically defined, meaning that I was born in a world without internet. And then internet happened during during my life, during my childhood. And so I'm, I'm digitally savvy. And I, I juxtapose that with, with Gen Z, 
that in many ways was born with the internet already. The internet was a as a constant thing. But but when I was growing up, when I was a young kid, you know, we didn't have I didn't have access to other stories. So you know, I learned about other Jews of color or black people in other parts of the world through my family or through my friends or through books or through these things that they used to make us uh, read for our um, our slightly older <laughs> listeners. Um, you might you might be familiar with Encarta, which was a, a like a, a, an encyclopedia <laughs> that was on CD-ROM that you could you could look through for information. And so so it's like it's it's crazy to to, to think that like how limiting my childhood was for exposure to other types of people. Now, um, if I want to, if I want to know, Hey, like what are examples of Jews of color throughout history who've done off awesome things? Mm -hmm. I can Google that and get a lot of hits. Um, I, if I want to know the way that people are living their lives in other parts of the country, or even if I read an article on a platform that I disagree with, I can type in that article and then type in the word disagree <laughs> or dissenting opinions and find um, find alternative opinions. And I think that all of that is is digital community. What digital community does is it, it enables me to not just be limited by the perspectives of people that are geographically immediately in proximity to me. To hone in on some of the things you just said in that answer, your book, by the way, that curious object that perhaps the next generation will not know. Um, your book, <laughs> Yarmulkes and Fitted Caps, is on my nightstand right now. And your poetic voice has so deeply resonated with me. Reading from it as I prepared for this conversation has been one of the highlights of my day, uh, every day this week. Oh, thank and, you. <laughs> thank you. As a literary scholar, my house is filled with these physical books books. Um, <laughs> but increasingly, we're returning to ebooks and to digital conversations in, in this digital age. And that's a trend that's been accelerated by our current environment with COVID-19, which, which makes physical objects harder and harder to access and to share. So we're increasingly turning to online content and even digital books rather than these physical objects that one used to keep on one's nightstand. And in the case of poetry in particular, which I think is so often animated by both the spoken word format and the written word format, and so I think frequently also amplified by shared presence with a speaker or shared presence with the page, there has to be a sense that this is changing the idea of poetry and the kinds of writing and the kind of thinking that that poets do. And I wanted to ask you as a writer and a publisher with both an online portal to written content and a very prolific production in printed hard copy media, how do you feel about the turn to digital text overall? And what do you think that the turn to digital text changes about what it means to read and respond to works of language right now, especially poetry? Great, great question. I think that I'm going to I'm going to answer it like a poet. <laughs> okay. Is digital format or digital text changing poetry? Yes. And no. First, in order to, to penetrate the question, maybe I should talk a little bit more about what, what is even poetry in, in the first place. And I think that it's, it's, a hard, it's a hard concept to define. I mean, in, in general, genre is a, is a hard thing to define. But the, the, probably the best definition that I've ever heard of poetry is is from Patricia Smith, and, and I'm gonna I'm gonna probably slightly butcher this quote. So, apologies to Patricia Smith. 
uh, who's, who's one of the greatest. But she said something very close to a poem uh, happens when the narrative becomes so stunned that it cannot continue forward without further exploration. Wow. And and for me that that kind of definition of poetry just just resonated so deeply to me. As somebody that that lives a narrative and and helps produce journalistic content as well. That okay, well what is the the poem though? The poem is where uh, is where the story explodes. It's where it's where you can't just continue on in a linear fashion. Something else is happening in this moment. And for me that's that's what poetry and Specifically for myself, I write a lot of poetry about identity and identity intersection. Mm -hmm. And for me, that that moment of of stunned narrative happens when one Mm -hmm. identity that we hold in our bodies collides with another identity that we have in our bodies. And whether that's Mm -hmm. being Black and Jewish or when your racial identity collides with your religious identity or when your identity in terms of gender correlates with your identity in terms of geography. Um, when one belief or value that you have comes into contradiction with another belief or value. And in that collision of identity, several things can happen. It can lead to a conversation. It could lead to a conflict. It can lead to a hug. It can lead to pain. And all of that, that, that moment of collision, that's the poem. And, that, and that's usually where I find mm-hmm. the poem. So, so given that that is my personal definition of poetry, nothing really in that definition has anything to do with words or paper um, or line breaks. And, and those, those things, those tools, I think, are part of the, the toolbox that poets have access to when they want to bring a poem to the world. But just as much as that toolbox has things like rhyme and meter and line breaks, sonic qualities, alliteration, assonance, etc. There are also tools that are more, you know, typically associated with spoken words, such as volume and speed, tempo, uh, mm-hmm. things that you can do with a poem in the air that, that are harder to do on the page. And I mm-hmm. think that with the advent of digital technology, all we're essentially doing is expanding the toolbox that poets have access to. Now we have the rise of video poems. We see different forms of visual poetry journals that are incorporating color and image or that have dynamic animation. I do not believe that these things change the definition of poetry. What I think is that they are reminders of the fact that the poet's uh, toolbox is very robust and that uh, we have access to pull from lots of different mechanisms to enter that particular explosion that happens when the narrative gets stunned. And I think that poetry, when it's working very well, is a vehicle that translates an emotion from a writer to an audience or a writer to a reader. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I use the word reader l- loosely because um, there's many ways that we can read now. Mm-hmm. We can read visually, we can read by hearing, we could read by being present. But but nonetheless, poetry is a vehicle that translates emotion from writer to reader. And now that we have digital technology, one, it can change access 
and how many readers can now have access to, to writing. It changes access of production in terms of how many people can now get their work out into the world. And it changes the actual means of communication, whether it can be now text or audio or visual or video or new modalities that, that we have not even created yet. Multidimensional collisions. Indeed. We're currently in an environment that in many ways is orthogonal to what we think of as community. And I want to get back to that definition mm. you gave us earlier of community. Um, and in its basic radical sense, the word community implies a type of gathering, which of course we cannot do, at least physically right now. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how COVID-19 is impacting communities within the Black millennial community, uh, both online and offline, and then more broadly about how platforms like Blavity can help us reimagine community because of the ways it is no longer, at least for the moment, possible. Yeah, so many things here. I believe that COVID-19 is absolutely asking us to reimagine what community means and what it means to gather. I think that the way that COVID-19 is affecting us is radically different depending mm -hmm. on who you're talking to. And I think that for some people, it means that we are no longer gathering and we are no longer in proximity to each other, which is hard and isolating in its own right. I think that in order for that portion of the population to be able to survive, COVID-19 has also created another subset of the population that needs to serve the people that are in isolation through bringing them food or still producing crops and producing equipment and through delivering services. And I think that there are lots of people that are now forced to gather with other people who they might not even necessarily want to be gathering with because it puts their own bodies and their own health at risk. And then, of course, there are, are incredibly large gatherings of largely Black populations in our incarcerated communities. I was reading a statistic today that was, that was estimating that, that over 70% of the prison population has COVID-19 now. And so when you think of, of a world in which now the, the most healthy thing is to choose not to gather, then the idea of forced gatherings becomes another weapon of oppression. And so um, I think that Black people and Black millennials are affected across that entire spectrum from Black people that are now in forced isolation or become caretakers of families um, or of larger community units, Black people that are, that are on the front lines as workers, as both doctors and healers, as well as, as laborers and food technicians. And then, of course, Black people that are incarcerated and do not have freedom of mobility uh, to choose who they gather next to and who they do not gather next to. And I think that, that what COVID-19 has done in many ways is acted as a, a pressure test on an already broken system to illuminate many of the holes and the flaws that, that have already existed and now people can no longer look away from. Does Blavity have a place in helping us reimagine community in this particular moment? I sure hope so. We do many things. I, I believe that, that at times like this, it's very important for there to be independent Black journalism. Uh, and at our core, that is, that is one of the primary things that we do. It's important that, that 
Black people have a voice, that we give opportunities for, for Black writers and, um, and for Black storytelling to happen mm -hmm. um, across the country and for us to highlight the different perspectives on this work. One of the initiatives that we are building is the creation of a database for small businesses to have access to a robust set of resources that are available to them. Um, and one of the things that we can really do as a tech company is serve to just aggregate all of that information that is specifically relevant. So that's a, that's a database project that we are, we are currently making right now and, and we're going to be launching within the next month or so. So fingers crossed, we might even be, be close to launch by the time that this podcast comes out. You know, we have to ask ourselves, you know, as Blavity, as, as a successful Black media company, where are we uniquely positioned to help our community? And I think that one, it's in terms of providing access to information, which means aggregating all of the information that's already out there and making it digestible, applicable, and accessible to, um, to people in our community. Two, it's the creation of new narratives and new stories um, that represent our communities that, that are not currently being proliferated in, in, other, in other media outlets. And then three, I think it's acting as a support system emotionally for our community reminding each other that we need to heal together and that we are not alone. And that whether you are in a situation where you are holed up in your apartment by yourself, or you're in a situation where you are being exposed to lots of people on a day-to-day -day basis, whether you choose to or not, that these are all valid and relevant experiences for, for Black millennials and for Black people in the world. And here are other people that are going through these things. Here's how they are do dealing with it. And here are resources that we can all use to support one another. Another way to think about the term community is through the etymology of the term, which comes from the 14th century Latin and means common, public, general, shared by all or many. How does your work and how does Blavity, and I guess even to expand my question a little bit, how does your identity as navigating and bringing together many different multiplicities and dimensions of identity, Black, Jewish, Afro-American, and of course, as a technologist and a humanist, reflect on that sense of the word community. I believe that media and digital technology, while per your point earlier, is not neutral, uh, I believe it, it is something that everybody should have access to. And that there are ways to use the tools of storytelling, of technology, and of digital narrative to improve the lives um, of all people, in including people of color and especially including Black people. So, you know, bringing the 14th century to now, I'd say, okay, what, what is the most common public, generally available technological resource in the world? And for me, that's, that's the internet. Now, of course, not everybody has access to the internet, and so I, I don't want to want to understate that. But more people have access to the internet than I than I believe most other types of digital technology resource, um, whether they're accessing it from their phone or from a computer or through another means. And I think that given that, then I say, okay, well, well, that's what's common. The internet, in and of itself, the World Wide Web is is what is common, and therefore is the place where community needs to happen. So for anybody that is interested in building robust community, to do that without an intentional focus on the digital space, I believe is going to be severely misguided.
I also want to complicate that by saying that there is still something very important about human-to-human physical connection. And so in no way am I advocating that community should only be created through digital means, but rather I believe that it is necessary that we learn how to weave both digital and physical community together, and in many ways operate in the way that Gen Z operates, where there's hardly a separation at all, that all events are live streamed via social media and have digital social engagement. And that digital social engagement has opportunities for then real-time collaboration and meetups in physical places. And that the, the movement between the digital and the physical should be, become seamless, just as the way that those connections are brokered is nuanced. The title of this podcast is Technically Human Principle or duality of principles that I think you so beautifully exemplify in so many different ways. And one of the many things that I find so, so fascinating about you is that you straddle the tech and the media world on the one hand, and on the other, you're such a prolific and astonishingly beautiful poet. Do you see a link between these two sides of yourself? Ooh, yeah, I, I, I think I think I do. I, I, I guess... I believe that the the role of the poet in the world is is in many ways a similar role as the role of of the entrepreneur, uh, and I think that those those two identities inform each other. Um, which is that I, I believe that that journalists, when they are operating at their best, they are they are telling the truth, and they're telling a nuanced truth, and they're telling a truth that maybe other people don't want to tell, but they are they are telling the truth of the facts of a situation. I believe it's the poet's job. To, to challenge those facts by telling the emotional truth of a situation and by imagining what could have been, from a speculative sense, a different emotional truth through breaking from the world of facts and entering into the domain of the emotional nuances that complicate somebody's experience. What the poet forces the reader to do is start the process of imagination and where that process can, can take a person uh, is limitless. It can take you to the future, to the past. It can take you inside yourself, it can take you inside of somebody else. And I think that that relationship of poet to journalist is very similar to the relationship of entrepreneur to technologist. In that, you know, there are people that are, live in the tech world that effectively live their life by saying these are the technological limitations of the world, and this is what I'm going to build within those constraints. And then there are entrepreneurs that see that and say, great, I'm going to use those constraints as a jumping off point to begin the process of imagining how I can build a different world. And in those ways, the identity of entrepreneur and the identity of poet both both really blend well for me. Because while I do want to, of course, tell the truth and, of course, want to function in this world in, within the technological constraints that we have, I simultaneously want to interrogate the very notion of truth and want to interrogate those constraints as I imagine how a world can be different and as I work collaboratively with other entrepreneurs and poets and dreamers and changemakers to think, what could the world look like? What would a different world be for us? One of my hopes is that some of those dreamers and change makers are listening to this podcast right now. Maybe some of them are in my class. What would you say to them if you could speak 
directly to give me a call you, you know let's build something together so. if not me somebody else i think that the 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 most salient advice for me right right now especially in this world of COVID-19, seems to be reminding myself on a daily basis, and so I want to remind others, that we are not doing this alone. Even if we are living in versions of a lifestyle that can look closer to isolation, I think it's important to remember that we are very, very much not alone, and there are many, many people in this world that are dreaming and imagining and building new things every single day. And I think that the worst thing that can come of this is if we stop working together to create things. I think it's it's even more important now uh, that we need to collaborate, that we need to be informing each other, that we need to be in constant communication. Like I said, you want to build something awesome, you think it's a good fit with Blavity, reach out to me. Um, and if not me, then somebody else. Reach out to each other, find people that are building projects that are relevant to you, that you can be in conversation with. Look for people that are slightly less developed um, in their thought than you are and reach out and offer them help or advice or support. Uh, find ways to work together the fallacy of the lone founder, lone entrepreneur is one that is not helpful to anybody. And it's not true. People don't build things, teams build things. And I encourage you to find your team and to find your support system. And if you feel that you got everything under control and you're good to go, then find somebody who you can be on their team and who you can be a support system for and reach out to them. That is so beautifully and generously put. Thank you, Aaron. I wonder if we could end this conversation with a poem. Is there one that you would be willing to read for us? Which keeps me. Black is the stain on me that everyone feels comfortable ignoring. Jewish is that too. The water keeps me here. I am not sure if I want to stay. When I say rope, I mean that which coils and unfurls. When I say black, I mean that which is constant as water. Water coils and unfurls. Jewish is that too. When I say mother, I mean, which keeps me here. Everyone feels more comfortable ignoring. Black, the stain, that too. When I say unfurl, I mean my afro. Jufro, it coils and coils. When I say keeps me here, I mean I cut it off, curl by curl. When I say cut, I mean plucked, I mean Jewish, a stain that everyone feels more comfortable plucking, rope by rope, the water keeps me here. When I say here, I mean not here, never was a stain everyone feels more comfortable ignoring. A rope which coils and unfurls remains as constant as water which keeps me here, which brought me here. Black is that too. Jewish is that too. Jewish is black too. The stain is the water, is the rope. The curls are 
coils unfurling and unfurling like an afro, like an afro, like an answer plucked out of the water, black by black.